Hey everybody and welcome to the 5 Bytes Podcast. I'm your host, Rory Monahan. The podcast, as always, is brought to you by my sponsors, Policy Pack Software, now part of Networks, where you use group policy or MDM to remove admin rights, manage and lockdown applications, Java, browsers, and mitigate ransomware, plus more. And also brought to you by Liquidware, the innovator in adaptive workspace management solutions. And also, of course, brought to you by ControlUp, end-to-end digital experience management for the work-from-anywhere era. Control up. Happy users, happy IT. If you enjoy the show each week, you have these awesome sponsors to thank. And now for some news. Starting this week off with an interesting follow-up to one of last week's major stories. So as reported, Broadcom looks set to acquire VMware for $61 billion. They had signaled their intent to also keep the VMware name alive and replacing their Broadcom software group using the VMware name. Well, the register and Ars Technica dived into the deal a little bit more, stating that Broadcom's plans include a rapid transition from perpetual licenses to subscriptions for the VMware products replacing discrete buy once, use forever versions, though rapid in this case will still apparently take several years. Broadcom CEO Hawk Tan said that the company wants to keep VMware's current customers happy and take advantage of VMware's existing sales team and relationships. From my perspective, having worked at companies who used Horizon and also some who worked with ZenApp and Zen Desktop and also CVAD, Um, The move to the subscription licensing can be challenging, and not everyone is on board with it. It makes sense that they will move to push customers to subscription, and at the moment, non-subscription alternatives in this area are becoming increasingly scarce. There are still on-prem solutions to be found, though it will be interesting, I guess, to see how customers move. I mean, the good news is that, you know, rapid means still several years possibly but if you've worked in a shop that uses uh, one of these platforms you've probably already experienced the sales push to try and get you to cloud and subscription so it's not going to be something that's completely unheard of but the intent being signaled should be a warning that this is going to be happening sooner rather than later i guess it's possible that if customers are not happy to move to subscription licensing and move the entire control pane and possibly even the user workload and users up to the cloud, that maybe more enterprises will move towards physical endpoints and good enough IT again, like using VPN and on-prem solutions for managing devices on always on VPN or even using modern quote-unquote modern solutions for management like Intune or Microsoft Endpoint Manager. So delivering locally installed applications to remote endpoints via the cloud, but not running the entire user load up in the cloud. It'll be interesting to see how this shakes out. The Ars Technica report stated too that VMware reportedly has 40 days left to find a buyer willing to pay more than $61 billion but I'd be surprised if anyone comes in with a higher bid than that. But hey, 
there's still time. Unfortunately, there's been some more bad news of Windows updates breaking something. This time, a Windows 11 update. It's an optional update, KB5014019, and it's said to break Trend Micro ransomware protection. Trend have stated, quote, Trend Micro is aware of a potential issue where customers who apply the optional Microsoft Windows 11 or Windows Server 2022 optional preview patches and reboot would then find that the Trend Micro UMH driver would stop, end quote. BleepyComputer.com reports the known issue affects the user mode hooking component used by several Trend Micro endpoint solutions, including Apex One 2019, Worry-Free Business Security Advanced Version 10, Apex One as a Service 2019, Deep Security 20, Deep Security 12, and Worry-Free Business Security Services 6.7. Trend have indicated that they are working on a fix to address this issue before the update previews are pushed to all Windows customers as part of the June Patch Tuesday. Now, I guess the good news here is that most enterprises haven't yet moved to Windows 11, and even those who have aren't likely to install an optional update or a preview update. So, yeah, hopefully Trend are able to resolve this problem before it gets pushed properly with the June patches. But if you did install this and you've noticed a problem with your Trend product and you haven't got support on it yet, well, then you can uninstall this update and then just wait for the June patch to reinstall it. The awesome Kevin Beaumont published a guide to help people detect what he has called a new Office Zero Day that was discovered or at least shared by a company called Neosec, who said that it was discovered in Belarus, which sounds a little vague. Right? They obviously got a source in Belarus to tell them about it, but they haven't really disclosed much about that actual source. Now, Kevin, for his part, has named the Zero Day Fulina. Kevin dug into the Zero Day, which reportedly uses Word's external links to load HTML and uses ms-msdt to execute PowerShell code, which could be used to execute code by would-be cyber gangs. Worryingly, earlier this week, Microsoft acknowledged the bug but did not address it as a zero day. They published CVE-2022-30190 and an advisory. They suggest as a workaround, you can disable the MSDT URL protocol, but there's no information in the advisory of what the knock-on effect of disabling this might be. I would bet some third-party plugins may use this feature for their own updates. Microsoft also suggested protected mode should prevent attack, but Kevin poured cold water all over that idea. Uh, maybe I'm getting more cynical as I get older, but I'm more inclined to believe Kevin in this instance, and I'm not so sure protected mode is going to be all you need to not worry about this. The Register has reported on a malware that uses PowerShell to add a malicious extension to people's Chrome browsers or using Bash for those using the browser on Mac OS. Apparently this has been around since February, but there has been a flurry of recent activity now. The attackers leverage a scheduled task named Chrome Loader, which runs, adds the extension, and then keeps setting it back again. So if you do remove the extension, it's going to keep getting added back. With this extension in place, the user will then get redirected 
to online advertisements triggering revenue for miscreants. Love that word miscreants. I wanted to keep that when I read that out from the register. It's reported that Chrome Loader gets initial access into a system by being distributed as an ISO file that looks like a torrent or a cracked video game. It is spread via pay-per-install sites and social media networks like Twitter, according to Red Canary's research team. Now, I'm not an infosec, but this seems like a really basic hack. This is the kind of thing that you would do in college to mess with a classmate, you know, set a scheduled task to execute a script that maybe pops up a bunch of junk on their screen or plays a sound. The article suggests that this one uses ISOs, which are typically blocked on end user devices in an enterprise, so it may pose less of a threat in an enterprise environment, but still, if you've got people working remotely on their own personal devices, it's one worth considering. In more hopeful security news, BleepyComputer.com has reported that Microsoft have announced that they will automatically enable stricter secure default settings, known as security defaults, on all existing Azure Active Directory tenants in late June 2022, so in just a few weeks' time. After the rollout starts, it's suggested that global administrators will be notified and can either enable security defaults or snooze their enforcement for 14 days when they will be toggled on automatically. Once toggled on in an Azure AD tenant, users will be required to register for MFA within 14 days using the Authenticator app, with global admins also asked to provide a phone number. Some of the new security defaults that should help protect enterprise user accounts from password spray and phishing attacks by, as stated, requiring all users and admins to register for MFA, challenging users with MFA mostly when they show up on a new device or app, but more often for critical roles and tasks, disabling authentication from legacy authentication clients that can't do MFA, protecting admins by requiring extra authentication every time they sign in, and more. Admins who don't want security defaults enabled for their organization can disable them through the Azure Active Directory properties or via the Microsoft 365 Admin Center. So I know that this was a topic that Patrick Coble had covered in regards to EUC cloud offerings and essentially just kind of looking at what the security defaults were. And I believe it was even for some on-prem solutions as well, but looked at them purely on out of the box, what are the security defaults and then which one is the most secure? I remember I shared that at the time that he published that, but it was really fascinating insight into you know what are the defaults selected or provided by these vendors how they compromise in order to provide convenience and uh, streamline setup and kind of the pitfalls of that so it's good to see that stronger security is going to be a de facto here windowscentral.com have reported on a new feature in development for microsoft edge that will allow users to save content and have it sync across platforms including to their mobile devices it looks like one catch here is that you'll be able to save and sync only as long as you have room in your onedrive storage if you are among the testers who are able to use the feature you can enable it through the appearance section of edge's settings if you do not currently have this feature then kind of hold your horses and it should be arriving relatively soon. Personally, I don't know how I feel about this feature. 
Microsoft have kind of been edging more and more into anti-competition practices, and I'm not really a fan of that. You know, if they get a lot of people onto the Edge browser and people want to use this feature, then also obviously they're going to be required to use OneDrive, which good for Microsoft, but maybe not so good for competitors. In my opinion. <laughs> The 2205 version of Microsoft Endpoint Manager has now been released. It brings fixes and some new features, including a streamlined experience for using autopilot on co-managed devices. IT admins now have an orchestrated Windows autopilot device enrollment path specific to these co-managed devices. Uh, they've also added over 40 more network security and usability settings for macOS devices to the settings catalog. And they have improved the remote support features based on feedback from support teams to ensure you no longer have to log off each user in order to provide remote support. Absolute insanity that they thought logging off users was a workable solution for help desks. <laughs> but glad this one's been fixed. Microsoft have announced that the Money in Excel template will be retired on June 30th, 2023 and are encouraging users to try their product called Tiller with a free 60-day trial. According to ZDNet, Microsoft framed the announcement suggesting that it was an underused feature. So from what I remember, there was a, like a Microsoft Money application back in the day, and even not that long ago, I think, as well. And then obviously that moved to become a feature or a template within Excel. And now it sounds like that's going away too and they're recommending people use this Tiller product. But as they said themselves, it's underused software, so maybe it's not all that relevant. And I'd like to think enterprises aren't actually using this feature, but who knows. My local university has been completing remote working surveys since the beginning of the pandemic and have published the results of their latest report that had over 8,400 survey respondents. Some of the interesting findings include of those who could work remotely, 52% were currently working hybrid, 40% fully remote, and only 8% were fully on site. And if you're not familiar with what the situation is in Ireland regarding the pandemic, things have been pretty open and back to normal for the most part for several months. Some of the other findings include if their future remote working preferences were not facilitated, 30% of all respondents indicated that they will change job, with 33% indicating they may change jobs even if it meant a pay cut. 37% indicated that they will change job and 27% indicated they are open to the possibility of changing jobs, even if it means less promotion opportunities, if their future remote working preferences were not facilitated. 49% of all respondents clock more hours while remote working compared to working on site. 45% work the same hours and 6% reported that they worked fewer hours. 30% of respondents indicated they spent 30 minutes to an hour of the time they saved commuting working. And 27% spent up to half an hour and 14% spent one to one and a half hours. Almost half at 49% 
believe remote working has no impact on opportunities for promotion, with 33% not yet knowing the impact, and 9% believe there is a positive impact, while 9% believe there is a negative impact on promotion opportunities. And that last one's actually probably the most interesting one to me because I have worried, in particular in an organization where there's some people on site, that being remote would greatly hamper my career progress while working for said company. But it sounds like most people are not that worried about it. So very interesting results. It's cool that they keep doing these surveys because you can actually see the percentages changing a little bit. And just from reading this report, it sounds like about 4% of respondents uh, will definitely be looking for a new job because they are currently forced to work fully on site and they do not want to. So the other 5% are those people who seem to be okay working on site. So hey, those 5% are happy. That 4% will be happy when they find a new job. When discussing general kind of business stories last week about the impending recession, I had mentioned that Microsoft was increasing pay grades for their employees. Well, it has since been suggested that they're also slowing down hiring for certain areas, perhaps in anticipation for a slowdown due to said potential recession, or possibly just to counteract the fact that their existing employees will be getting a pay bump. Well, wouldn't you know it, Ars Technica reported this week that Apple plans to raise the starting pay of its hourly workers, according to a Wall Street Journal report. In the U.S., employees' pay will be at least $22 per hour, which could be higher in some markets. And that's 45% higher than it was just in 2018. Additionally, Apple plans to increase starting salaries for corporate workers in the United States. It will also move up some employees' annual reviews by several months, to enact pay increases as soon as July. Interestingly, on a recent episode, I also mentioned that Apple has employees back in the office two days a week and the fact that they were going to try and increase that to three days a week but held off reportedly due to a concerning spike in COVID cases in the U.S. Well, Ars Technica also reports that Apple recently lost an AI machine learning leader who specifically cited the company's remote work policy as a reason for his departure. So, so interesting that all of these things that have kind of been talked about and I've covered on the podcast, like the great resignation, uh, people wanting to be able to work remotely, just digital experience, work-life balancing, you know, it's all real and this is affecting pretty much every organization And this is just an example of how it's affecting these large tech companies right now. And just to wrap up the news for this week, a couple of quick hit stories. The Verge reports that Google have announced that it's combining two of its video calling apps, Duo and Meet, into a single platform. Pretty soon there will be only Google Meet and Google's hoping it can be the one calling app users need for just about everything in their lives. So those features that you get today in Duo that are not currently in Meet, like say one-to-one call capabilities for phones, will be brought to Meet. Version 9.3 of Numescent Cloud Paging Studio has been launched. It brings with it official support for Windows 11 and Windows Server 2022, but also I see some interesting things in the release notes, including PowerShell CAEs, So if you're familiar with 
not even cloud paging, but say maybe app V or something like that. And the ability to do like launch scripts or scripts that run on shutdown or whatever with AbbVie. Um, CAEs is that same type of custom scripting that you can use within cloud paging apps. So looks like enhanced support for running PowerShell. They're also bringing enhanced automatic driver detection, which it is enhanced because in cloud paging studio that I've been using for years, it already detects drivers and it tells you, hey, we detected this driver. Uh, you may want to go to the advanced features and select this option to enable that to work. So again, if you've used application virtualization in the past, you know, drivers don't work in that, but it does in cloud paging and it sounds like it's becoming even smarter in how it handles those drivers, which that's saying something because it seemed to be pretty flawless anytime I've used it. My guess is they've maybe, you don't have to check anything now. It's just automated and it tells you, hey, there's a driver here. I'm gonna handle this for you. Also, if you're familiar with the Cloud Paging Studio, you may know that before you do a capture, you've had to save your package, even though you haven't actually done anything with the package. Uh, that's interesting to me because I thought that was just their way of handling reboots that are required during the installation. So maybe they're handling the reboots in another way, or maybe I'm completely wrong and it was never for handling reboots. I'm not entirely sure. Um, it was kind of a clunky process, like it felt unnatural to have to save before actually doing any work, but it seems like with the new version, now you don't have to save it. You could just capture your package, modify or whatever, and then save it. There are also some other changes and enhancements in this version. Uh, I'll share a link to the release notes if you'd like to read about them for yourself. As I do with absolutely everything I talk about on the podcast, you can find all the reference links at 5bytespodcast.com under reference links for this episode, which is episode 232. And now, a hot job. So the hot job this week is a customer success management manager for Citrix in Dublin. It said some of the role responsibilities include, you have a detailed understanding of what success looks like for customers. Uh, you will have laser focus on all phases of the implementation journey, understanding how to drive successful customer outcomes and further increase Citrix production adoption. You're responsible for tracking of customer adoption benchmarks and forecasts based on defined business use cases. You'll also be responsible for implementation and tracking of customer success management operational metrics against best practices. Uh, you will ensure your team has up-to-date strategies defined to advise customers on best practices, business process enhancements, industry knowledge, and visibility into current versus future state product capabilities. You will facilitate relationships between business and technical teams, identifying business drivers and processes and more. I won't go through absolutely everything because you know, a lot of these job specs are kind of boilerplate. But some of the essential criteria for an ideal candidate would be requires a university degree from an accredited university or equivalent experience. Uh, three plus years of experience managing successful and highly performant customer success teams. Strong understanding of cloud subscription models. Demonstrable experience in delivering on KPIs, operational and business metrics. Be an excellent problem solver, ability to work cross-functionally, 
to deliver results and a few other kind of boilerplate ones there <laughs> as well. Some of the benefits include 18 weeks of paid parental leave, health and wellness benefits, employee assistance program, retirement benefits, time off and absence programs, professional development and mentorship opportunities, paid volunteer time and charitable matching of employee donations, employee resource groups, and more. If you want to read more about this job spec and go to an employer yourself, I'll share a link with this episode. And now this episode, scripts, tricks, and tips. EUC365 had a pretty good guide on Microsoft Graph API and Power BI. If you haven't used Power BI yet and work in enterprise, chances are you will eventually. And if you are already using Azure in any way, shape, or form, you'll likely become familiar with Microsoft Graph too. So this combination of the two should be of particular interest to anyone working with Azure and also those interested in scripting as well. The awesome Helga Klein performed analysis of network activity on Windows operating systems from the OS itself, applications running on the OS, and services too, including providing the number of IP addresses on the internet that were being called and also number of hosts as well. I'm not going to give it away, but the IPs are in the thousands and the number of hosts being communicated with were in the hundreds. What a powder keg. <laughs> uh, if you're nervy already, this one could make you lose sleep. Microsoft shared a guide on how to turn images and designs into apps using artificial intelligence powered express design. So this is another one in the realm of power apps, that idea of just being able to take you know, images, actual like pictures, and turn them into automated solutions. Um, kind of in line with RPAs and some of that interesting stuff. And finally, Microsoft also published a pretty interesting article on hybrid Azure Active Directory join versus Azure Active Directory join. Uh, again, I feel like over the last few weeks in particular, I've been becoming maybe more and more cynical about Microsoft and I've mentioned, I think every week for several weeks about you know, anti-competition concerns. But the article that I'm sharing this week on this topic suggests you don't really need to worry about GPOs not working because thousands of group policy objects have been ported to modern settings in MEM, which, yeah, mileage may vary on that because not everything is there. Um, you're able to run an analysis of your existing group policies to see if there's something available in uh, Intune or Mem. But then if it's not there, eh, sorry, Charlie. As pointed out in this article, if you do decide to go to Azure Active Directory join, the computer objects are also not created in your traditional Active Directory. So, you know, you can use traditional Active Directory and have your devices Azure AD join. But if you're just doing Azure AD join without the hybrid, obviously, a computer object's not going to be created in your traditional on-prem AD. It is suggested Kerberos authentication of machines will not work on Azure Active Directory joined devices. So I have a bit of a hard time with this one. There are still many instances where machine targeting is still essential. And while Microsoft have an inside track on this, obviously, and you know they maybe don't seem concerned with it not working, and possibly it's not on a roadmap to get that working in future. Now, that's just speculation on my part. I have no idea. Maybe it is. But if it's not, what does this mean for third-party products that support machine targeting? 
What about those customers who want to target machines? Are they going to have to rely on maybe a convoluted solution of integrating through Intune or something to accomplish this? I really hope they have worked this out with their partners because the lack of Kerberos authentication for those computer objects may cause problems. I'm not entirely sure that hooking in through Intune is a favorable solution. And again, that could potentially mean a solution tailored in such a way that it's anti-competition against other vendors. I don't know. I've, <laughs> I've been taking an extended leave uh, from work and I, it just seems to be making me more and more cynical. Um, but it was an interesting article. I think it's just even interesting from a standpoint of how does Microsoft pitch going Azure AD join? So from that perspective, knowing that and knowing the way that they're going to sell it uh, is worth knowing. So I suggest you check out the article. And that's it for this week's episode. On that cynical last topic, I'll leave it there and hopefully next week I'll be in a better mood.